Welcome to the 93rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with S.G. Scott Brown, the author of the new novel, I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Scott Brown, the author of the new novel, I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus, which is published under the name S.G. Brown. Brown is also the, Scott is also the author of the novels Breathers and Faded. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Sure. Well, before we get started, could I ask you if you could read the first page of your new novel, I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus? Absolutely. And uh, just as a for, for anyone who has read Breathers, if you haven't read Breathers, you don't you don't have to have read Breathers to read this. But if you have read Breathers, you will notice that I use the same rhythm in the opening chapter for this that I do in the opening chapter for Breathers. Or you might notice if you remember the book well enough. So so here is the, the opening for I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus. I wake up on the ground in darkness. Faint, artificial light filters up into the night sky, silhouetting the trees below me and creating a soft, ambient glow that's reflected off the falling snow. Which doesn't make any sense, because the last thing I remember, I was inside the research facility. So it's a little disorienting to discover I'm flat on my back on a hillside. That, and I hear somebody humming jingle bells. When I sit up, something rolls off my chest and down the hill coming to rest against a mound of earth with a thud. It's some kind of heavy black metal cylinder. I get to my feet and walk down to retrieve it. At first I think it's a flashlight, but when I pick it up, I realize it's a stun baton. And the mound of earth isn't a mound of earth, but a decomposing corpse. I'm in the body farm. Great. Well, if the listeners haven't heard about your new novel, I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus, how would you describe it? Well, it's it's kind of a, a heartwarming zombie holiday tale. I <laughs> even though it says I saw zombies eating Santa Claus on the front, and and people who are not familiar with my writing might think it's a typical melee melee of of, of zombies attacking humans. Santa Claus doesn't really get eaten. It's really more of of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street meets zombies with reanimated corpses. So it's, it's, it's more along those lines than what you would consider your typical zombie fare. So that's the best way to describe it. It's kind of a, a nice heartwarming holiday tale about a zombie just trying to find some happiness in his life while giving some to a young girl who doesn't have, have much happiness in her own life. Sure. Sure. Well, I know that the the book, even on the uh, uh, even on the cover, is referred to as a Breather's Christmas Carol. If, if the listeners haven't heard of your earlier novel, Breather's, can you talk about a little a little bit about that? I mean, because it obviously leads into your new book. Oh, sure. And and I apologize if if I tend to ramble a bit on my answer. Sometimes I'm trying to get better at it, but I, I tend to sort of ramble on when I give answers. But it, Breathers, I always describe Breathers as Fight Club meets Shaun of the Dead, only with zombies as the good guys. And it's it's a story about a zombie who reanimates from the dead, but instead of your typical Hollywood zombie who is you know mindless and soulless and just shambling along, hungry for human flesh, 
my zombies in breathers are reanimated corpses who are gradually decomposing. They have no rights and they need a lot of serious therapy. And I always thought, you know, if I was if I was a zombie and, and this happened to me, how would I react? How would society treat me? What would my parents think? Could I join a bowling league? So these are the questions I wanted to to explore. And so my zombies, my mythology of zombies is very different. My zombies are sentient, they're very much aware of what they've lost, and they are non-humans. They do not have any rights, but they are allowed to exist in society so long as they have uh, a guardian to look over them. So my main character, Andy Warner, reanimates from the dead after dying in a car crash that killed his wife and orphaned his seven-year-old daughter, and he lives in his parents' wine cellar. So they have a little bit of a of a strange little dynamic going on. Uh, not exactly your regular nuclear family. The father resents Andy's smell and the fact that he brings down property values and the mother just tries to pretend <laughs> that everything's okay. And so Andy attends undead anonymous meetings with a bunch of other zombies trying to make some sense of their new existence and to learn how to to find some purpose in a society in which they have no purpose. And that's really the sort of the driving force behind breathers is my main character, Andy, as well as the other zombies, trying to find their purpose. And really, it's, you know, that's what, that's what most humans are trying to do anyway. But I take it from the standpoint of, of a zombie. And of course, I didn't start out with the intent of writing a book that I dealt with issues of prejudice and discrimination. But when you're writing a book about zombies who, are, who don't have any rights and are considered non-humans, I couldn't stay away from addressing that issue. So it became part of the social commentary of the book. And almost everything I write has some sort of social commentary, social satire in it. I like making fun of humans and the stupid things we do and the way we act and and our little, little foibles that we have. And I end up doing it through zombies or uh, immortal personifications of abstract concepts or detectives who have the ability to steal luck. So I just kind of do it with some sort of a fantastic or or supernatural element. It helps to sort of, of of make the social commentary a little a little less heavy-handed because sure. because you you have that that fantastic element that allows you to sort of suspend your disbelief a little bit and and hopefully not feel like you're getting hit over the head with the social commentary. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, obviously, as you've described, you're using zombies uh, in in a humorous way, but also as you just articulated to, to really uh, write a lot about social commentary. D- do you remember before you started writing breathers? Um, what was it about zombies that appealed to you? Or were you kind of surprised as you got the idea and started writing it? What, what was that process like? Well, I, I, I wrote a short, the, the, the book breathers came from a short story that I'd written in 2001, which was called a zombies lament. And which, of course, ended up being the subtitle for the book. And I'd written for about a dozen years before then, but what I'd primarily written was straight supernatural horror, a la Stephen King, Peter Straub, early Dean Koontz, F. Paul Wilson, Robert McCammon, etc. And as a kid, I loved horror movies and monster movies. I think one of my favorite movies of all time, even though it's really cheesy, it's really really bad B horror movie is the horror of party beach, which is kind of like mixing creature from the black lagoon with, with those Frankie and Annette, you know, beach movies. Uh, Cause they actually have music and singing in it too. And then you have these 
like I said, sort of creature from the Black Lagoon creatures that come in and attack all of these young, nubile teenagers. And I just remember watching that as a kid. I liked watching Creature Features with Bob Wilkins, which is where I first saw Nine of the Living Dead back when I was in sixth grade. And this was back before, you know, you really had cable TV, you didn't have VCRs, cable wasn't really going on. Uh, and so it was something that you couldn't just watch all the time. You had to wait for it to come on. For So it was, it was an event. And when it came on, it was, it was so much fun to watch. And that was really sort of my first, my first introduction to zombies, even though I'd been aware of them in some way, shape, or form. I don't know how. I just remember people telling me you need to see Nine of the Living Dead. And ever since then, I always enjoyed zombies. But for the 10 or 12 years I was writing supernatural horror, I didn't write anything about zombies. And I kept trying to, to write something, but couldn't seem to come up with anything that really resonated with me. It just felt like I was doing something that somebody else had done before. And, and as I had mentioned, I, I got the idea of flipping the roles and putting myself in the position of being a zombie <coughs> rather, than, rather than somebody else. Oh, no problem. <laughs> rather than somebody else, um, rather than me being the one running from the zombies. And I'd never seen it done before. And of course, since in, in the last six or seven years, quite a number of people have, have, have done uh, some some zombies as uh, protagonist or as more of a like Fido. You go back and you look at Fido, and, and even at the end of of Shaun of the Dead, and obviously now with you know warm bodies and a number of other things, and, and numbers of, of of literary fiction or fiction that has come out that's zombie fiction, you get more of that take. But I'd never seen it done back in two thousand and one. I'd never read anything. I'd never seen anything with zombies as protagonists, and I just thought that would be a nice a nice perspective to take, something different and something to challenge me and see if I could do it and make it work. Great. Well, you just mentioned this 10 or 12 year period when you were writing supernatural fiction. Uh, what was the path to publication like for you before you got your first novel published? I mean, uh, have you always <laughs> been writing? I, when I, when I graduated from college, my desire was to become a writer. And of course, I moved down to Hollywood and worked in Hollywood for a couple of years, which wasn't really writing. I wasn't making a living writing. I was working in Hollywood, and you always hope you get your foot in the door, you write a couple of screenplays, and I just decided it wasn't working. And so for the next you know, 10 years after I, I left L.A., I, I wrote. I wrote whenever I could. I woke up in the morning, and I wrote. I, I wrote at night. I wrote during the middle of the day. If I was working as a waiter, uh, and I had middle of the day off, so I just spent time writing. And during those 10 years, 10 or 12 years, I wrote three three books and about four four dozen short stories of varying lengths. And I had about 10 of those stories published in small circulation magazines, which typically earned me a contributor's copy or two. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. I think the biggest the biggest amount of the biggest payday I got was for winning a contest with one of my stories and it was five hundred dollars. And that was the first actual money I'd earned writing anything. And although I had representation on my on my second novel, uh, and Breathers is technically the fourth novel I wrote, I I didn't get published at all. And then in two thousand and 2003, I was inspired to take A Zombie's Lament 
which was more dark comedy and social satire with a supernatural element and, and expanded into a full-length novel, which is not something I'd ever considered doing with some of my other short fiction that was more dark comedy than, than straight horror. And I really enjoyed it, and I had a lot of fun with it, and I realized I enjoyed trying to make myself laugh more than trying to scare myself. And if I can make some others laugh along with me, that's even better. So I finished that up in 2006, in June of 2006. It took me a little over two years, two and a half years to write it. And I went about looking for an agent. And it took me 15 months and 82 agents who said no before I finally found one who said yes. And two months after I had representation with my agent, Michelle Brower, she had me a book deal with Random House for breathers. <laughs> I thought, wow, wow. I, 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 if I would have known it was this easy to get a book published, then I would have, I would have gotten an agent a long time ago. And of course, <laughs> when I was first writing, of course, you know, that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the catch 22. But you know, when I was, I think even when breathers came out 2009, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that the self publishing, options were nearly as numerous or and I don't want to say easy but it's a lot easier now to self-publish than sure. it was five years ago and especially ten years ago there really weren't any options very little options I think you had ex libris and maybe something else but it was all you'd have to you couldn't even do print on demand ten years ago you had to get a big pallet full of books and spend your money and hope you could actually make it back but now you don't really have to put that much money out because you can do it all as, as ebooks, but uh, but I had no desire to self-publish. I wanted to find an agent, and I wanted to 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 make my splash in the publishing world that way. And, and it, it took me a while, about twenty years from the time I first started out to become a published author, until I finally had my first book published. Great. Well, well, what kept you going during that time? Well, for first 10 or 12 years, it just, I liked writing stories. I enjoyed trying to explore these things. I think, and, and, and I, I need to qualify this. I am not comparing myself to Stephen King at all. Uh, and I'm, I just want to qualify that. But one of the things that he always liked to do in his writing, and he even says it now, I think in full dark, no stars, he even says it. He says he tries to make sense out of the world in which he lives with his writing, some of the things that happen. And sometimes, you know, they, he goes into dark places with it, which is what he does in Full Dark, No Stars. And, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so I might be misquoting some of what he said. But he, I think he said this all the way along, and that's something that I always liked doing. And so that's what kept me going, is I would see an article in a newspaper or a story here, or hear something there, and I would think, what would make this happen? What is another reason for why this would happen rather than just on the surface. I always felt that there was something going on beneath the reality that we can see. And, 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 and that's what I like to explore. And that's the supernatural aspect. Is there, is there another reason these things are happening? And so that was always fun to explore. But there came a time around 2001, 2002, where I was actually rewriting my second and my third books for possible publication with some small press and found I just wasn't enjoying the writing anymore. I, I, I didn't like what I was writing. 
I wasn't having any fun. And I started to question whether or not I wanted to keep doing this. If writing, if something you're doing is not fun, why are you going to continue to spend your time doing it? And, you know, and of course I wasn't getting paid for it. So there was that. So, but if I was having fun, it didn't matter. And so I took about a year off. And then that's when I went back and, and looked at Azami's Lament and started working on that again. I just had a lot of fun telling the story. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. It's hard to say what keeps you going, I and, think. And did, as, did you ever figure I, out in your, your own mind what was going on for that year that you kind of took a break? What, what was it about the writing that wasn't enjoyable? Well, I, I, I tend, you know, whether or not this is, this is real, I tend to think that there was something in my subconscious that was saying, you're going to have the option, opportunity to have these two books, which are straight supernatural horror, published in small press, which wasn't going to pay much, and, and you, know, you wouldn't be able to find them in bookstores, etc. And this wasn't anything conscious going on. It's just something I thought about later. That my subconscious was, was preventing me from working on that because that wasn't the type of writing I was supposed to be doing. And it allowed me the opportunity to stop doing that and to find the voice and the type of writing that I enjoyed doing much more so by having me wait until I, I decided to do something with that short story about zombies. Right. And so I, there so wasn't just, anything. So trying out a lot of different voices until you found one that you felt like was yeah. truly yours. I don't, I don't, I, yeah. Again, that, I don't think that was a conscious thing, but I, I had this opportunity in front of me in 2000 and I think it was 2002. And and the opportunity was was there for me to finally get some books published, and I felt like I was sort of sabotaging myself in some way, shape, or form because I I, I was losing missing this opportunity that I'd been working so long for. You know, at that point it was about about twelve years, and and I just had to had to give up on it because I wasn't having any fun. I didn't like what I was writing. I didn't like the rewrites. I didn't think it was good quality. I didn't think it was, it was worthwhile and, you know, got down on myself and needed a break. And so I took that break and that break is what allowed me to write breathers. And I, like I said, I think something was going on inside of me and said, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be writing something else and you need to take a break until you figure out what it is. Got it. So what is your writing process like now? Do you have a specific time of day um, do you do you use any special tools or just Microsoft Word or are you a, a, a Scrivener fan? What what what's kind of your your writing process like? Well, I, I used to love writing in WordPerfect. I hated Word. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a WordPerfect fan, and even and I would say I would say ten years ago I still ten years ago I, I think WordPerfect was was a better product. In Microsoft Word. This is just my own personal opinion because I was working in it, obviously, and I always felt that the reason you couldn't that micro, that WordPerfect wasn't more popular is because Microsoft Word just or Microsoft, and and, and of course I I don't know if they did this, but I wouldn't be surprised if if they somehow didn't allow stores that carried Corel to carry <laughs> Microsoft the Microsoft Suite the, the Microsoft Office Suite if they carried that. And of course you didn't want to screw over with Microsoft. And so nobody, nobody bought it, but I thought it was good. 
Uh, it had a few elements that I thought were much better. I thought the thesaurus and the dictionary were better. I thought the headers and footers were much much easier to figure out. I still have trouble. I go into to, to Microsoft Word and I have trouble getting the headers sometimes to work the way I want them to work when I don't want them appearing on the first page. It's just not straightforward. You have to jump through all these hoops. And of course, maybe somebody else can <laughs> tell me I'm wrong, <laughs> but I always have to go try to figure it out. And on WordPerfect, it was just so easy. Just click here, click here, and it was done. Yeah. In any case, so now I tend to write in Word because that's what my editor uses and my my agent uses. Sure. So they can use track changes. And track changes is obviously a fantastic thing to use that, that allows you to see what everybody's changes and comments and everybody's making. So I use, I use Microsoft Word. I work on a laptop and I work on a desktop. And sometimes I work on my laptop on my, on my couch. Sometimes I go down to a local coffee shop and I'll sit there for three, three or four hours and I'll work there. But I spend a lot of time working in my apartment. So as a writer, you spend a lot of time working by yourself. So it's nice to go to the coffee shop and at least be surrounded by some people every now and then and realize that you're part of a human race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and get some human interaction, even if it's just seeing them peripherally. Sure. But when I'm really working on a project, I will, I will, my intention is to get up and write from, you know, 7 to 11, 8 to, eight to 11, three or four hours in the morning, then in the afternoon, you know, eat some lunch, get some exercise, or maybe have some lunch with a friend so I can, again, get that human interaction going in. Take care of some afternoon stuff like email and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, because the middle of the day is typically my lowest creative point of the day. It always has been. And then I'll work for another three hours in the in the late afternoon from like, you know, three to six or something. And then Got it. I, might, I, still might, I still might do some work later in the evening, depending on what I have going on. That's when I'm working on a project and that's, that's the ideal. But it's so easy to get distracted. You wake up in the morning like, okay, I'm going to go on, check my emails, make sure there's nothing I need to do. And the next thing you know, that's an hour and a half later and you've done emails and Facebook and Twitter and it's 8.30 and you haven't even eaten breakfast yet. And so it's easy to have your your best laid plans waylaid by the internet. <laughs> and that, that happens a lot. Uh, yeah. Neil Gaiman once told a story about that. Uh, I, I was sitting in actually in Brighton at the, at the uh, world horror convention in 2010. I can't remember. I think it was 2010. And somebody asked him about his writing process. And like most writers, you kind of think process I'm supposed to have a process, but he said that he'll typically wake up in the morning and he'll, you know, spend an hour or two blogging and doing that and then do his writing. And, and it happens often, oftentimes his, his daughter will walk up to him and say, what are you doing? And he'll say, what are you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be in school? And she'll say, I did go to school. I'm home. And he'll realize he sat there for six hours doing nothing but, but, but blogging and Facebook and emails. And his entire day got away. <laughs> yeah, that, that happened this morning. It's uh, I, I had four hours of time, and I you know had breakfast and did a couple of things, and then all of a sudden I found myself doing all this stuff online. And two hours went by, and and I realized, oh, well, so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, um. Given your given your perseverance and getting published, what what advice would you have for aspiring writers? 
Well, the, I think the obvious one is 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 never give up. I, I do have to admit, I I talk to my my writers group. I have a writers group that that helps critique my books, and I was around eighty rejections on my book, and I said, if I reach the century mark, I'm going to need a, a, a good pep talk. But it you, you you have to develop a thick skin. You have to realize that just because somebody doesn't want your your book maybe it's not right for them you get the form letter this isn't right for us or maybe you get a scathing thing saying that you know that it's it's sophomoric or or there's there's some other significant inherent problem with your book or your writing take take it take take something positive out of it find out if you think that maybe there's something that that you can you can improve on your writing from what they say, and then let it go. You have to. You can't. You can't have it derail you completely, because if you do, if you allow somebody else's opinion to determine whether or not you're going to continue writing, then you're letting somebody else dictate what you want to do with your life. And you can continue writing. And you know, if if you can't find your way in publishing there, you know, you can do the self-publishing bit. But but writing is very subjective. There are things people can tell you that 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 is constructive criticism that will help you with your writing but then there are others who are just out there to be mean you know and as a, as a published author you can go and read reviews on Amazon etc cetera, etc cetera, from readers you know these are not you know professional reviewers or bloggers that have been doing this for for years and years and years maybe just somebody who reads it and wants to share their opinion and there's a lot of nice responses but you want one really nasty response can sort of ruin your whole day. And you have to try to find a way to not let that happen. You have to remind yourself that you're doing something that matters to you. And that's the most important thing is, is the truth of what you're writing is what matters most. And again, I think, I think Stephen King said something very similar uh, about that is, that is that the truth to you, you know, finding the truth of what you want to write is is the most important thing and and that goes along with another thing that I've always said is that don't allow somebody to tell you what you need to write or what you should write don't try to write the next bestseller or try to catch on to some sort of of fad or trend or something that's going on just because you think it's popular and it will sell because if if you're not writing something that that makes you laugh or makes you cry or sends shivers down your spine something that resonates with you on some level, then it's not going to resonate with anybody else. And that's the most important thing. So if you're true to yourself in your writing, if you're writing something that matters to you, eventually it will matter to somebody else. That's, that's great advice. What, what are you working on now? Have you started another novel? Well, I'm, I'm working on the, the first round of edits with my editor for my fourth book, uh, which is Big Egos. And that is, it's based on a short story I wrote back in 1997, which was originally called If I Only Had a Brain, and which I retitled and, and added some, some information or added some, some, some content to and, and retitled My Ego is Bigger Than Yours is a short story. And here's a, a, a shameless self-promotion, which is in my, uh, my short story collection, which is an ebook only short story collection called Shooting Monkeys in a Barrel, which is 10 Twisted Tales, and a number of them, number of the short stories in there actually are stories that, that became my books or were spinoffs from my books. And so my 
the short story, A Zombie's Lament, that inspired uh, Breathers is in there. The short story, Softland, which inspired my third book, Lucky Bastard, is in there. And then I've got two other stories that inspired Big Egos, the book I'm currently working on. And once I'm done with that, I'm going to start working on my, my fifth book, which is called Super Duper, which is based on a short story called Dr. Lullaby, which is also in that collection. And, right. and again, it's social commentary. It's got some kind of, they both have a, a supernatural, fantastic element. And with Big Egos, it's a, it's a designer consumer product that, that you take that allows you, that it's, it's kind of a, you can take it in pill form or inject it into your system that allows you to become a dead celebrity or a fictional character for six to eight hours. So it's sort of taking role-playing games and avatars to another level where you're the actual avatar and, and, and you're the, you're the platform and you actually believe you're this, this person or this fictional character. And the book is about what happens when the social commentary is what happens, what happens to your own identity when you're constantly pretending to be somebody else. And of course you can take that on, on a number of different levels. If you're always pretending to be just a person that you're not really, do you actually become that person and what happens to the person you really are? So, gotcha. so that's the concept. of Big <clears throat> Great. Well, where can people find you online? Uh, the best place to find me is my website, which is www.s. S-G, G's and Gordon, Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E. There's an E at the end of my name, .com. So that's sgbrown.com. The, I also am on Facebook and Twitter and Goodreads. And you can actually find the links to all three of those uh, on my website under contacts. But uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm on author S-G Brown. And on Twitter, it's S underscore G underscore Brown. And then on Goodreads, uh, it's the same thing. So uh, that's those are the best places to find me. Great. And I'll have links to those in the show notes as well. So uh, again, we've been speaking with Scott Brown, author of I Saw Zombies Eating Santa Claus, which is in bookstores now. And it's published under the name S.G. Brown, as we explained earlier. Scott, thanks for doing the interview. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And, and thank you for having me on. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.